Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Well, welcome to Cross Lane this morning. If you're new to us, we're really, really glad that you decided to spend some time with us this morning. You're here on a good day because we launch a new series today called Right in the Eye. I am excited about this series uh, and what it's going to teach us. Got a very practical lesson for us today. It's not... um, It's not necessarily a mainstream lesson, as you will discover here in a few minutes. We're going to begin this series, and and it can only be described as one of the most outrageous, maddening, ridiculous stories in all the Old Testament we're going to look at today. It's, it's I mean, it's one of the most outrageous stories you're going to hear ever in history, but certainly it's one of the most outrageous in the entire Bible. It's found in the Old Testament, and it's a little bit long, and it's a little complicated, So I'm going to try to tell you this story and make it make sense for you. Most of this series that we're going to do in the in the uh, right in the eye series is going to come out of the Old Testament book of Judges. So if you have your Bible handy and you want to kind of follow along today, I'm I'm not I'm going to tell you the story more than we read the story, just purely for time's sake. I can tell it quicker than we can read it. Um, It's going to be toward the end of Judges, like chapters 19 and 20 and 21. Um, The book of Judges is a narrative of a part of ancient Israel's history, and it took place in a time when they had moved into the promised land under Joshua. If you remember, Moses led the children out of Egypt. Moses died, and then Joshua led the children into the promised land, and they go in there and they get settled. Joshua dies, and then about 330 years later, Israel becomes a monarchy with King David. So... This period of Judges, if you read the book of Judges, really is about this, it takes place in this 330-year span of time between the time of Joshua and the time that they became a monarchy. And during this time, they were kind of like a commonwealth. They were, they were kind of like the, the first 13 colonies, original colonies. There was no central government. They, they had a common ancestry, common religion, common language, um, a lot of things in common but they were 12 distinct, distinct tribes, and the reason they were 12 tribes is, if you know anything about Bible history, you know that there was a man named Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And from Jacob came 12 sons who, in essence, became the 12 tribes of Israel. They were each their own little nation that also made up a bigger nation of Israel, and um, they, because there were 12 of them, you know, there were, there were all these people in these different tribes. We don't know exactly how many in, in the area of somewhere between the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in these various tribes. So th- during the book of Judges, you have these 12 tribes inhabiting the promised land. There's no king because they're supposed to view God as their king, okay? God was going to be the leader. God was going to be the king. And the way it was supposed to work was that God was the king, Uh, he had given them his law, and they were supposed to obey the law, and then God was going to raise up these judges, and the judges would basically rule. I mean, not like a king would rule, Um, basically they were supposed to distribute the law and make sure that the law was kept and, and kept intact, and also to make sure that people were protected and didn't get hurt. But here's what happened, The, the, the nation of Israel abandoned God's law. And because the nation of Israel had something in common with you and with me, and that is, we don't like to be told what to do. 
right? I mean, that's probably one of the biggest reasons. I know that's a big reason why men don't want to go to church. I mean, a man's attitude is basically, why would I go someplace, give up a morning of my day off, and allow someone that I don't even know that well tell me what to do? To, To which my reply is, I'm not telling you what to do. If you really listen to me talk, I do not tell you what to do. I tell you what happens when you make certain choices. And I tell you, if you want to avoid that, here's how you avoid that. You do what you want. But if you do that, this is likely what's going to follow that. So none of us like to be told what to do. And besides that, the law was written somewhere a long time ago. And who wants to listen to something that was written by somebody that doesn't know me and what I'm going through and what my life is like? And I'm just not going to listen to that. And there was no king, there was no real government, and so basically everybody did what they wanted to do, which would mean that they would go through a a certain cycle. And if you read the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, New Testament, and then really if you just look at your own life, you will see the cycle is a recurring thing. It's 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 repeated over and over in the lives of the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's repeated in our lives as well. Um, First, they would disobey God's law. It would result in disaster. They would cry out for help, and God would send a deliverer. Then they would go right back through the process. They would disobey God's law. It would result in disaster. They would cry out for help, and God would send a deliverer. And this kept going on and on. And they'd say, you know, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. And I would just ask you, does that sound remotely familiar to you? It certainly does to me. And here's the interesting thing about the book of Judges, and if you're not a religious person, here's something that we all have in in common. At some point in your life, you're going to disobey something. You either disobeyed the religious law you grew up with, you disobeyed your parents, you disobeyed your conscience, your conscience said don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you did it anyway. We would call that disobedience. And then there was disaster. Oh my goodness, What have I gotten myself into? Look at the mess I've created for myself because you disobeyed something, your conscience, your law, maybe you disobeyed God, your religion, whatever. And then it was deliverance. I need help. I need help. I need help. And somebody came along and gave you a break, extended grace to you in some way, bailed you out, gave you a second chance, paid a fine, got you some help, maybe got you into rehab. I don't know. Somebody came into your life and you said, I'll never do that again, I'm never going to go back, and you didn't for about a week. So the book of Judges is about a nation that for about 330 years just got into trouble, got delivered, got into trouble, got delivered over and over and over again. It's not a story unlike our story. So there's a lot about the book that reflects in some ways all of our lives, but at the very end of the book of Judges is this extremely outrageous story. I'm just going to tell you up front, this story we're going to look at today, you probably don't know many of the details of this story, but it reflects just how bad things had gotten in the nation of Israel, and it reflects what happens to a group of people in a community or a nation or an individual when they decide, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I think is right, you do what you think is right. I'm going to do what I think's right. Don't tell me what you think is right for me. You don't know me. And it's none of your business, so don't tell me, and I won't tell you, and we'll just stay separate, and you do your thing, and I'll do my thing. And so for 330 years in the nation of Israel, that's kind of how it went. 
So it was up and then it was down. It was up and then it was down as they went through this process of, of disobedience and then disaster and deliverance. And they just kept going through this process over and over and over again. And the whole thing kind of devolves into a cesspool of a story that is so horrible, it's hard to believe that this is how the nation of Israel basically went, but this is how the nation of Israel, Israel went. And it is at the end of the book of Judges that you hear this story that I want to share with you this morning. Now, you have to remember that the nation of Israel is divided up into 12 tribes. So in these 12 tribes, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And they all lived in different parts of what we would come to know as the Holy Land today. Our story today is about a Levite. He was from the tribe of Levi. We are not told his name. And he lives in the hill country of Ephraim. And he decides he's going to go get himself a girlfriend. Throughout this story, she is actually referred to as a concubine. A concubine was kind of like a girlfriend, servant, slash wife, slash fill in the blank. It's kind of a legal thing, but it wasn't really a legal thing. And it certainly was against the customs of the Israelites and the traditions of the Israelites. I think the whole idea of a concubine was something that they had inherited from the Canaanites, which was a group of people they weren't even supposed to be hanging out with. We're going to learn about that in a few weeks. But this concubine was not from Ephraim. She was from Bethlehem. So she went uh, down to Jerusalem, and, and, or he went down to, to uh, I'm sorry, he went down to Bethlehem and found this woman and uh, brought her back up to Ephraim in the north country. They lived together for a while. She was unfaithful to him. He finds out that she's been unfaithful. She finds out that he's found out and gets scared. So she runs back down south to uh, Bethlehem to her family and kind of hangs out with with family and with dad. So some time goes by, and I don't know, know whether he just got over his anger or whether he got lonely, which is probably what it was. And he decided, you know what, I need to go get my concubine. And so he travels way down south through the area of the tribe of Benjamin, down through Judea. And he shows up at this father's house, and he, he walks in, and he says, I'm here to get my woman, and I'm going to take her back with me. Now, dads, I'm just going to ask you, how's that sitting with you? You like that? You like the sound of that at all? I'm here for my woman, and she's going back with me. Well, this dad didn't like that very much. He's not real excited about that, you might imagine. So the dad, he's not really a father-in-law. He's maybe the concubine-in-law, I don't know. The Bible refers to him as a father-in-law, even though we don't really know that they were married. Anyway, he keeps this guy up every night drinking, right? So keeps him up all night drinking. They're drinking, drinking, drinking into the night. If you don't read your Bible, you should really, really read your Bible. So this guy's waking up every morning with a hangover, and so, you know, by, it's, it's noon before he can see clear to, to even walk straight, and by then it's too late to leave to go back to Ephraim, And so the dad says, hey, it's too late in the day to leave. Why don't you just wait and go in the morning? So the guy decides to wait. Sure enough, dad keeps him up late that night, drinking, drinking, drinking. He wakes up the next morning. He's hung over. It's noon before he's in any kind of shape to be traveling anywhere. The dad says, it's too late for you to leave. You'll you'll never get to Ephraim before uh, the, the sun goes down. So, and it's not safe to travel after the sun goes down. So why don't you just stay And you can leave in the morning. He keeps doing this to this guy. Keeps getting him drunk. Keeps getting him drunk. And this guy keeps being hung over. Finally, one day, he looks at his concubine and says, I don't care if we don't get home in one day trip. We're leaving 
now. So they pack everything up and, and they head back to Ephraim. And he loads up. We're told that he has now, it's him, he has a male servant, his concubine, and two donkeys. And so they leave Bethlehem and they're going to travel back up to Ephraim and get um, all their relationship worked out. Well, they leave so late in the day on this journey that the sun begins to go down and they end up in a town called Gibeah. Gibeah. And Gibeah is where the tribe of Benjamin lives. So he gets there, he goes to the town square. That's the way it worked back then. When you got to a strange city, if the sun was going down and you were going to need to stay there for the night, you didn't want to be on the roads and the highways late at night. Um, it was bad news for, for that to be happening. Um, hospitality was such that what you would do if a stranger showed up in town and you were the stranger, you were to go to the town square. And these are villages. These are not cities. The, the, you know, we're not talking about cities with hotels and motels and restaurants and things like that. Nothing like that. This is basically just a stripped down village. You were supposed to go to the town square and generally there would be a town, uh, a well in the town square and you would wait. And then someone would see you there. They would strike up a conversation with you and they would invite you to their home, especially if you were an Israelite. And this man was not a Benjamite. He was a Levite, but he was still an Israelite. So nobody shows up. In fact, people are walking by this, this, these two donkeys and this male servant and this concubine and this dude, and they're kind of looking at them funny, and nobody's talking to them, and they're not treating them very nice. And the sun is setting, and they're out in the middle of the town square, and nobody is inviting them into their home. Nobody's saying anything to them. And so as night is beginning to fall, a man comes through the city gates and he passes through the town square, and he looks over, and he sees them standing by the well. He walks up, he strikes up a conversation with them as the guy and this man from Gibeah start to talk. The man from Gibeah tells the Ephraimite, the Levite, the man from Ephraim, hey, I used to live there. And so they strike up this conversation and kind of reminisce a little bit, and I guess talk about Main Street, and you know, is the Pizza Hut still open? I don't know. But he basically says at the end of this conversation, hey, why don't you come home and stay with me for the night? And uh, so now you've got the Levite, the concubine, the male servant, two donkeys, and this dude who used to live in Ephraim who now lives in Gibeah. Are you confused yet? So this is where the story is going to get weird, and I'm just going to tell you, you're going to hear parts of this story, and you're not going to like it very much. Um, the author tells us that late in the evening after they have finished eating and drinking that the house is surrounded by what the Bible calls wicked men. And they begin banging on the door and they say to the man that lives there, this comes from Judges chapter 19 verse 22, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Now this was not so much an issue of gratification as much as it is an issue of humiliation. Canaanite men often did this to other men to humiliate them, and they would, they would basically do this. In fact, this carried on into Greek culture. This even made it all the way into the first century. Uh, the Romans discovered groups of people that would do this. So these guys are pounding on the door. They don't like strangers. They don't like guests. They're basically saying, hey, we don't want anybody staying in our city. We don't want anybody new coming in here and trying to put down roots or stay with us. And we're going to teach him a lesson when he leaves and talks about the experience he had in Gibeah. No one is going to want to come here, which I can vouch for that. If I heard what happened in Gibeah, I'm not going to Gibeah. But, um, you know, they're not nice there is what I would say. So verse 23, 
the owner of the house went inside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. He went outside, not inside. Don't be so vile since this man is my guest. So the laws of hospitality are in effect here. And I'm just curious, I don't think any ladies would have seen this or not many, but guys, how many of you watched the movie Lone Survivor? Did anybody see that movie? If you know anything about that movie, there's a Navy SEAL, he, he's with this group of guys and he's the only one left and he's, he's in the Middle East and it's in a bad place and basically this hospitality law that still is, that still is recognized to this day is in effect and this guy takes him in and protects him at risk to his own family. It's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing story but we've lost what it means when we hear hospitality in the old testament it meant something way different than it means for us this guy when he offered to take this man into his home and his concubine and his male servant and his two donkeys he's basically telling them i'm going to protect you at all costs i'm not going to let anything happen to you i am your protector and i'm your provider for the night so these laws of hospitality are supposed to be in effect and, and he's, he's saying, you know, these guys have come to my home, and I can't let you do this to them. I'm, I'm responsible to make sure that these guys are protected. So he keeps going. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. So at this point, the homeowner is kind of like the, the hero of the story. And he's saying, look, stay away. They're under my protection. I can't, I can't turn these guys out to you. And now the story is going to get even stranger. I'm just going to tell you. Um, I just want to remind everybody, people get mad that stuff like this is in the Bible. All this is, is a reflection of the culture of the day. When you read this story, it's not like God wanted it to be this way, okay? It's not like God's like, hey, look how I had it all set up. No, this, this is what happens, that's the whole point of the series, is this is what happens when people do certain things. So, um, this just kind of reflects the mores and the folkways and the customs of the time. So here we go, it's going to get weird it's going to get bad. Verse 24. These guys are wanting to have sex with this man, and the, the guy that's in the house now that's trying to protect everybody, here's what he says. I don't understand this. I would never do this, but this is what it says. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. To which we're reading that, and we go, what in the world? But the men would not listen to him, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And I will not even put up on the screen what the Bible says happens next. You have to read that in your own Bible. If you didn't bring your Bible, I'm sure you will rush home now and, and look up Judges chapter 19, verse 26. Um, but what happened was horrible. Okay, It was horrible. The next morning, the Levite wakes up opens the door, there lies his concubine in the doorway, and she's dead. He takes her body, he puts it on his donkey, and he and his male servant and the two donkeys leave town, and eventually they make their way back to Ephraim. And he is extremely angry. The laws of hospitality have been violated. The concubine has been murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. He has almost lost his own life and he decides something has got to be done. So he writes a letter to all the major tribes, all 12 tribes. He writes a letter to the civil leaders of these tribes, to all 12 tribes, and he says, here's what's happened. 
um, and he hires servants to go carry these letters. But before he does, he realizes, wait a minute, if I just write a letter and tell him what happened, nobody knows who I am. Nobody's going to do anything if I do that. So he says, I've got to do something else. I've got to do something bigger than that. He's really upset, so he comes up with an idea. He chops his concubine into 12 pieces, at which point, you know, like 13-year-old boys go, cool, and the rest of us go, that's disgusting. But that's what he did. He chops her up into 12 different pieces, wraps her body parts up, and attaches them to the letters that are going to be sent to all these different tribes And so two or three days later, the assistant to the mayor goes out and gets the mail, and she comes in and says, hey, mayor, you got a letter, and oh, by the way, UPS dropped off this box, and he opens it up, and there's a head inside, or there's a, you know, a foot, or a leg, or an arm, or something. And this letter explains this horrible thing that has happened to this concubine in the city of Gibeah, and the nation is outraged. And they're thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, we have sunk to an all-time low. Look how all these different tribes are now doing their own thing and, and what we've become. We've been overrun by Canaanite philosophy. And the Philistines have just wrecked us and they've changed who we are as a people. But this is horrible. This is something that should never have happened. We should never do this to one another. So they gather together and here's what the writer tells us. Judges chapter 19, verse 30. Everyone who saw it, that is, everybody who heard this story and saw the body parts, was saying to one another, such a thing, in other words, we've reached a brand new low, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. So messages are sent, you know, letters are traveling back and forth, and they're all deciding what they're going to do, and they, they decide to put an army together, and they're going to show up in the town of Gibeah and say, we demand that justice be done in the name of this man from from Ephraim, this Levite. And so they send out the message throughout all the tribes, and this is basically what they say, verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. So they send out this message. And they basically say, every single city, there has to be a tribe. In every single city, you've got to bring, send people to us. We want them armed. We're going to march in force into the Benjamite territory, and we're going to demand that justice be done. And when they gather in Mizpah, all the men and the fathers, they make an oath. And the oath is this. No matter what happens, we will never allow our daughters to marry Benjamites. I mean, they looked at them so horribly. They said, we're... We don't trust these guys. We don't like what they've done. We're never going to let our daughters marry Benjamites. And they marched in force, stood outside the gates of Gibeah, and demanded that the Benjamites turn over the perpetrators of the murder of this concubine. They had also sent a letter and a body part to the tribe of Benjamin. And as you might imagine, when the tribe of Benjamin got this package, they realized that everybody else was going to be mad at them. And they started to prepare. So they started to get their army together. Um, they, they get them all together. They line them up around the city of Gibeah. And they said, we're not going to give you the perpetrators because they're Benjamites. There hasn't been a trial. And you're not going to come in from the outside and tell us what we should do to these men. In other words, it's our business. We'll handle it. So now you've got an armed conflict. And it's on the verge of breaking out. 
Messages are sent back and forth to the 11 tribes of Israel. Um, they decide they're going to attack the Benjamites uh, at the city of Gibeah. So on the first day of battle, the 11 tribes go after the Benjamites, and the Benjamites prevail. They beat the 11 tribes, and the, Benjamite, the uh, 11 tribes take pretty heavy losses. The following day, same thing happens. They attack the Benjamites, the Benjamites fight back, and there are heavy losses on the Israelite side. The Benjamites prevail again. On the third day, the 11 tribes of Israel come up with a new strategy, and they decide they're going to feign defeat, and they begin to run as if they're retreating. Well, as they retreat, the Benjamites pick up the pursuit, and they leave the city of Gibeah. And another group of Israelites is waiting in the wings. When they leave the city of Gibeah, the other Israelites come rushing in. They set the city on fire. They start to wreak havoc. And the Benjamites realize what's happening to their city. So they turn around. They run back into the city with the other Israelites now in pursuit. What happens next is that the Benjamites are overrun and overcome by the Israelites. So by this point in time, the, the 11 tribes of Israel, their bloodlust is up. They've had enough. They, they are ready to see some justice done. They're angry. They burn Gibeah to the ground. They kill every woman, man, animal, child. They go city by city throughout the tribe of Benjamin, and they lay waste to everything. They burn everything down until the whole region of Benjamin is nothing more than a smoldering, smelly wasteland of a battlefield, and everyone is dead. But the original army that stood outside of Gibeah to defend the Benjamites, the Benjamites that were a part of that original army, 600 of those guys escaped into the desert. And for four months, that's where they stayed because they were scared to death to come back in. They didn't know what they would find when they came back in. So these 600 guys stay out in the desert. Well, after the bloodlust begins to diminish, and it now dawns on the leaders of these 11 tribes of Israel, oh no, you know, what have we done? We've just committed this genocide and now one of the tribes is going to cease to exist because we've wiped the whole thing out. So, you know, God, we're sorry. There's been this genocide, and we've eliminated an entire tribe. They've killed everybody, everything, and they've burned down every city. And then finally somebody raises their hand. And they say, you know what? Actually, there are 600 of them left. They fled into the desert, into a remote area. Perhaps we can coax them back out. Somebody else raised up their hand and they said, yeah, but they're all male. They're never going to be able to, to populate their tribe anymore because they're all male and it's just not going to work. And, you know, they, we've, besides that, we've made an agreement that, that we wouldn't allow any of our daughters to marry Benjamites, so there's going to be no way for them to populate their tribe. What are we going to do? And then someone else raised their hand and said, hey, were there any cities that when we started to form the army, were there any cities that didn't respond to the letter? In other words... Was there a city that didn't send representatives? Well, they come upon this, this um, city called Jabesh-Gilead. Somebody says, is there anybody here from Jabesh-Gilead? And nobody raises their hand. So they now dis discover that Jabesh-Gilead has left them hanging, and they decide to do something about it. They put together a smaller army. They send them into the city of Jabesh-Gilead with these instructions. Kill every man, kill every woman, lay everything to waste, kidnap the young girls, and bring them back, and we will give those women to the men who are waiting in the desert, and we'll give them to them as wives, so that we don't completely annihilate the tribe of Benjamin. You should really read your Bible. Have I mentioned that? You should really read your Bible. So this is exactly what they do. They raise the city, 
They kidnap the young woman. They bring them back. They coax these men out of the desert with these women now. And here's what they say. They say, we're sorry, okay? We're sorry, but we've got some good news and we've got some bad news. The good news is we've brought these women from Jabesh Gilead and we're going to give them to you as wives so that you can populate the tribe of Benjamin. The bad news is there are 600 of you and there are 500 women, so somebody's going to miss out in the find-a-wife sweepstakes. And, and it's not going to go good for about 100 of you. And there's more bad, that, that was more bad news. You know, we're, we're going to not have enough for everybody. And then somebody else says, well, I have an idea. Every year there's this festival in Shiloh, and in that festival these young girls come out and dance in the field We'll let the men who don't have wives hide in the woods, and when the women come dance in the field, they can rush out and kidnap for themselves a wife, and we'll tell the fathers that they haven't violated the oath because they didn't really give their, their daughters in marriage. They were kidnapped. Dads, how's that make you feel, right? Like, oh, yeah, that's okay. Well, if they were kidnapped, it's okay for them to go. Okay, that's, I'm good with that. I mean, it just you hear it, and it's like, makes no sense, but this is what happened. So... They're thinking, you know, this is a good thing because now they're going to be kidnapped. We haven't given them, and the, they're going to populate that, that tribe, and it's going to be great. So that's what they do. The young ladies come and dance in the field. They, they, these guys run out from the woods, and um, all the guys that have been left out of the grab-a-wife sweep, sweepstakes now are going to be able to grab a wife out of this field. They throw, one, you know, their woman over their shoulder, and they're headed back to their town, and they're going to go back and begin populating this scorched earth. And then... The book of Judges ends. There are no heroes, nothing good. Now, I'm, just, I'm curious this morning, how many of you grew up and you had somebody reading the Bible to you when you were growing up? Let me see your hands. Raise them high, be proud. Yeah. Did they ever read this story to you? They skipped this one, didn't they? Right? All the, all the little boys are saying, I want to hear the story about this chainsaw and the concubine. And dad's going, no, no, we're not reading that story. Right? I mean, this is not a story you read your kids at bedtime. It's just not. As the writer of Judges ends this unbelievable story, he makes a comment. And here's, a, here's the comment. It is the final verse in the book of Judges. Listen to this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And because there was no king in Israel, because there was no final authority, there was no one to impose the law of God on a nation, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To put it a different way, in those days there was no binding moral consensus. There was nothing that said this is right and this is wrong. So people followed their own moral compass. There was no binding moral consensus, so people followed their own moral compass. People did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Now, the strange thing about that story, at every point in the story, each character in the story or characters, the decision makers, did what they thought was the right thing to do at the time. But when you stand back and you begin to look at those right decisions, what you find is chaos. The men in Gibeah were like, you know what, look, we don't like strangers in our town, and we don't want anybody staying in our town. We have the right to decide who stays and who doesn't, and don't we? Yes, we do, so 
send that guy out here and we're going to make a lesson and an example out of him. And when people find out what we did to him, nobody's going to want to come to Gibeah. We won't have a tourist problem at all. And uh, this is how we're going to protect our town from strangers because we don't want them coming in here. We will humiliate them to the point that they do not come back and no one else is going to want to come back either. Don't we have a right to do that? Absolutely, we have a right to do that. So they're pounding on the door, and the Levite inside the house is like, you know what, babe, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be in this mess. If you hadn't run off to your dad's house, and if if your dad hadn't kept me up keeping me drunk all night, and we've been able to leave at a decent hour, this is all your fault. And we're in this mess because of you, and if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have to throw you out to the wolves, so to speak, and none of this would have happened. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And then when she's murdered, there has to be justice. How can... I get people's attention if I just write a letter, so I've got to cut her up into pieces. I've got to do something. I'll chop her body up, and I'll send out the body parts, and that'll be great. And so the whole nation comes in and defends, demands justice, and it just seemed like the right thing to do. The Benjamites were like, hey, wait a minute. You can't just come in here and take one of our people off or take some of our people off and make an example of them. We, we're Benjamites. We'll decide what's right and what's wrong. We'll punish people the way we think they should be punished. It's none of your business. And then the rest of Israel thinks, you know what? The right thing to do is to teach, teach Gibeah a lesson. I mean, it's just the right thing to do to find some wives for these guys out in the desert, so let's go find some wives for them. And you know, Jabesh Gilead stood us up. They didn't come along and support us like they should have, so we think it's a good idea, idea to go level the whole city in there and, and take some of those young girls and give them to these guys so they can populate their tribe again. And at every point along the way, You drop in, isolated from everything else, and everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, and it was chaotic. And here's the thing. Here's why we're going to talk about this. There's some of that in you, and there's some of that in me. There's something in me that wants to say, hey, wait a minute, it's my life. It's not yours. You don't tell me what to do. There's something in you that says, hey, I'll decide for me what's best for me. I don't need you telling me what's best for me. I'll keep my opinions to myself where you're concerned. You keep your opinions to yourself where, you're, where I'm concerned, and we're going to get along fine. And in fact, this is kind of the underbelly of the philosophy of the American dream. This is kind of the unspoken part of the American dream. That part of us that says we want the freedom to do what we want when we want, with whom we want. That's the American dream. I want, to do, I want to be so autonomous that I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and I don't want anybody else to tell me what to do. But because we're Americans, and because we're civilized, and because we, we think, you know, that sounds kind of barbaric to just say it like that, so we have a tagline that we put on the end of it. You know what the tagline is? Anybody know what it is? as long as nobody gets hurt. Doesn't that sound good? I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as nobody gets hurt. Now, there are a lot of problems with this, and we're going to talk about them over the next several weeks, but I want to, I want to kind of get your mind going this morning. Because we live in a culture that every single day of our lives, in some form or fashion, either through advertising or music or media, And I'm not anti any of those things. But somehow, through those means and others, 
Somebody reaches into your heart, reaches into your conscience, your mind, specifically reaches into your emotions and stirs that part of you up that wants to do whatever you want to do with whomever you want, whenever you want. And nobody can tell me what to do because nobody's going to get hurt. But there are a few problems with that. The first one is this. Only the super rich can afford to do this. Because if you do this for very long, if you do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want, eventually you're going to need a lawyer to get you out of trouble. And the only people who can afford that are rich people. In fact, you're going to need, in, in America, if you do that, you're going to need a team of lawyers, especially in the United States, to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. It, it's just really for the super rich. And the other thing about it is the only people that can actually preach this message are the super rich entertainment type of people anyway. That's the ones who writes the songs. That's the ones who, who write the movies and make the movies. That's the ones who basically produce this narrative that, hey, the American dream is nobody tells you what to do. You live on your own terms. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I'll do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And we watch the characters and we listen to those songs and we say, you know, that's me. That's me. That's how I'm going to live my life. We see it on television. We go, I want to be just like that. I want to be strong like her and be able to make my own decisions and not care how it affects anybody else. I'm just going to do for me. And I'm, I'm going to make my own decisions. And it stirs something in us. So we buy the music, we watch the movies, we listen to the stuff. And who can blame them for singing about it? But in the real world, you never find people with real world experiences preaching this message. You, can you imagine a fifth grader Uh, not a fifth grader, but a fifth grade teacher. It's Friday afternoon. She's getting ready to to dispatch her class for the weekend. And she looks at him and she says, now class, before we dismiss for the weekend, just remember that the key to happiness is do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. And don't let anybody tell you what to do, boys and girls. Have a great weekend. I'll see you on Monday. Can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine CPS sitting down with a a parent, and they say, you know, we're going to take your kids away from you because you've been irresponsible, but the key to getting your kids back and being happy is to just continue to do what you want, when you want, whenever you want, with whom you want, because that is the key to happiness in life, and as soon as you master that, we're going to give you your kids back. You've never heard a parole officer say that. You've never heard a judge say that. And the reason is because people who live on the consequence side of this equation know better. They know this doesn't work. The other reason this doesn't work ultimately is this. This generally always works out better for men than it works out for women. Have you noticed that? In any world where men do what they want, when they want, whenever they want, eventually women become possessions and profit centers every single time. Think about this. Everywhere that women have rights, they've had to fight for them. Everywhere women have rights, they've had to fight for them. Because when men do what is right in their own eyes, when there is no king, when there is no moral consensus, women always suffer. The other reason this doesn't work is that that, that thing we want to tack on to the end. It just doesn't work. You can't do what is right in your own eyes without eventually hurting someone. That whole, I want to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as nobody gets hurt, is impossible. And the reason it's impossible is because eventually you're going to hurt you. And you're someone. 
So if you do what is right in your own eyes and you hurt you, you have hurt someone, you've hurt yourself, and ultimately you will be mastered by something. Think about this. Think about the thing, and we've all had something in our world that has mastered us. Think about the thing that has mastered you. Maybe it was a habit, it was a, a, a relationship that you're trying to figure out how to get out of, it was a, you know, something had mastered you, and you think, man, how do I get out of this? Was, maybe it was alcohol, it was an addiction, could be any number of things. In fact, I wish you could sit with me when I talk to people and they're describing what's going on and there develops this theme and you can kind of hear it and they'll describe this thing that happened bad to them and I'll say like let's say they're I'll I'll ask maybe like were you drinking when that happened they'll say yeah I was drinking when that happened okay and then this bad thing happened yeah okay then they'll tell me a little bit more of the story and I'll stop and I'll say okay were you drinking when that happened yeah I was drinking when that happened okay let's let's make a note of that and then we'll establish this pattern over four or five different horrible episodes. And in every one of those episodes, alcohol was present. And I'm like, do you see a pattern here? And they kind of look at me like, no, I don't really see the pattern. Because you, you can't, you eventually hurt yourself with this do anything that I want to do kind of mentality. That thing that has mastered you began as an expression of your freedom. You said, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, and now you can't do whatever you want to do when you want to do it with whomever because you've been mastered by the very thing that was an expression of your misguided freedom to begin with, and you hurt you. And it all began with, nobody tells me what to do. I'm a man, I'm a woman, unto myself. But it's not just you you hurt. You hurt the people with you. You're with the people with you. That's why parents understand this. You know, your kids are getting ready to go out, and you say, wait, who are you going out with? So-and-so. I don't want you going out with them. They do such and such. But, Mom, I don't do that. Well, I know you don't do it, but if they do it and they get messed up, it could affect you. They understand that, that people that are with you can hurt you. Not only that, but you hurt the people that care about you, teenagers in the room. You don't ever hurt you without hurting your mom and dad. And you're too young to understand that. You don't understand what I'm trying to say, but one of these days you're going to grow up and you're going to have babies of your own, and they're going to grow into teenagers, and they're going to hurt themselves, and when they hurt themselves, they're going to hurt you. Because when they hurt themselves, they hurt you. Men and women who are married, you can't hurt yourself. If you're married, you can't hurt yourself and it just be hurting yourself. It hurts your wife. It hurts your husband. You can't do what you want to do when you want to do it with whom you want to do it and nobody get hurt. And then what about this? You hurt the people that are coming after you. Now, I'm just going to get personal for a minute. Some of you are dysfunctional. (laughs) You're kind of odd, aren't you? you? You got some stuff going on in your life. And you don't even know why you do some of what you do. You would say, Brett, I don't understand why I do that. I do that all the time. I have no idea where it's coming from. Why do I do that? And some of you are just hard to get along with. You're obsessive, compulsive. It's a problem. And now you're in your 30s and it's like, okay, I'm starting to figure out that some of this has to do with the way I grew up because, you know, maybe dad wasn't there or maybe mom was there, but she really wasn't there. And some of you understand that the reason you're a little weird is that your parents somewhere along the way said, you know what? I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and it's nobody's business, and they forgot to factor you in. 
And they said, it's not going to hurt anybody, and they didn't realize it was going to hurt you. But it has hurt you. Every day of every year, and you look at yourself and you go, why do I do this? Why do I do this? And here's the really strange thing, especially if you're a Christian. Why would we aspire to that anyway? Why would we aspire to the bottom of the barrel? I don't understand why we do that. I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and I'm going to devolve into chaos personally, and nobody is going to stop me. Why would we even want to do that? What is wrong with us? How come we never hear this? I should be able to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, as long as it helps somebody. Where's that? Why wouldn't we aspire to greatness? Why wouldn't we harness our passions to make the world a better place? Why wouldn't we look up instead of looking down? Why wouldn't we decide that we were going to do as much as we could instead of getting away with as much as we can get away with? And then in the end, here's the problem. We're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. Because when disaster strikes, we want help. Right? Remember when you were a kid and dad said, no, you can't do that. But I want to do it. No, you can't. No, no way. No how are you going to do that. And you look at your friend and you say, you know what? That's just dad. He doesn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The old man's lost his mind. I mean, he, he doesn't understand what our culture is like and he doesn't understand the fun we're wanting to have. And so let's go ahead and do this thing. And then you get arrested and they give you one phone call. Who do you call? Hey, Dad. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm at the police station. No, it's not a field trip. I need you to uh, come get me. What's wrong with us? Now, as a Christian, God has invited you to call him Heavenly Father. And any good thing, including any good rule, any insight into making a relationship better, it all comes from our Heavenly Father. And the strange thing is, when we do what is right in our own eyes, and we diss God, and the world falls apart, and then we pray, again, I, I wish I had a nickel for every time we've had people come into church here, they come, they get involved, they're excited for about six months, and then they suddenly kind of drop out they didn't have an epiphany and decide that jesus really isn't who he said he was and he wasn't the son of god and i'm not going to go to church anymore because i don't believe that that's not what happens they quit coming to church they miss a sunday then they miss two then they come back for a couple then they miss three then they come back for a couple they miss four next thing you know they're gone they just kind of drop out they don't want anybody to call them they don't want anybody to make them feel bad and then one day and they go off and they take a sledgehammer to their life and they beat it beyond all recognition. And then you know what they do? They come back to church. And they hold it up to me or they hold it up ultimately to God. And they say, God, can you, would you fix this? One of the themes that we're going to see in the book of Judges is that every time the nation of Israel disobeyed God and every time disaster came to visit the nation of Israel, they turned their eyes to God and they said, we need help. 
And the God who had been ignored, and the God who had been embarrassed, and the God who had been disobeyed and abandoned for Baal and the other false gods, that very same God stepped into the life of a nation and delivered them time and time again. And he does that for us time and time again. As I just talk about all this and you discover where you are in this cycle of disobey, disaster, and deliverance, the great news is that the God who invited us to call him Father will step into the chaos that we have created by ignoring him. I'll just ask you this question as I close. If you were God, how would you respond to a group of people who had decided, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it with, and nobody is going to tell me what to do. How would you respond to that? If you were God and you knew that every man was going to basically make decisions for himself and isolate himself from everybody else and ultimately isolate himself from himself, what would you do? And if God really loves us and if he really is our Heavenly Father, how would we, how should we expect him to respond to us? I don't really know how to wrap this up other than to just say this. Every Christmas, we get all excited and we decorate our houses and we have Christmas trees and we put up the lights, all in anticipation of the celebration of a king. Most of the time, we don't even really want a king. When we think about Christmas, we're celebrating a king. We have this big celebration and welcome into our life, Jesus, but don't tell me what to do. Don't rule over me. I'll do it my way because I know better than you. And then at the first sign of trouble, oh God, please help. We've got to get better. We've just got to get better. Let's pray together. Father, this morning is just kind of an overview of what happens when we do what we want to do when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. And God, we have all in this room been there. This has at one point or another in all of our lives kind of been our slogan. And we can all tell our own story about the chaos that falls out of that kind of behavior and that kind of philosophy. The beautiful thing this morning, God, is your grace is bigger than all of that. Your love for us so much bigger than our disobedience. And when we fall into that cycle where we disobey you and the disaster comes, you are there to deliver us. You never say, you know what, you made that bet, I'm going to let you lay in it. You fix the problem through Jesus. And so, Father, this morning we just tell you thank you. We don't deserve it. Don't know why you would do it. But we know that you love us and we're thankful. Father, this morning, I pray that what somebody maybe that's far from God is hearing is that there is a God who loves me that much and is willing to forgive me of everything that I've ever done, no matter how bad. I mean, God, everything that we just heard in this story, your grace is bigger than everything we just heard in that story. Certainly, your grace is bigger than anything in our life. And for that, we just pause and say thank you. 
for loving us that much. It's in Jesus' name we pray.